Well, good morning. You know, for those of the, those of you that don't know me, my name is Steve, and I'm one of the pastors here. And I just wanted to follow up a little bit from what um, Jake just mentioned. I know that the youth they all went up to. You guys went up to Missions Connection. At least most of you did uh, yesterday. How was that? Good. Yeah. So they've been kind of investing in other things, even around this kind of mission endeavor that they're involved with. And for those of you that don't know, I feel like I'm really loud. I haven't even gotten wound up yet, and I'm still, so. Um, for those of you who don't know, the Buellers were a part of the church here for years, and then God called them over to the Dominican Republic, and, and Melissa and Mike and the whole family were home um, just, I don't know, it was just a couple months ago because uh, Melissa lost her mom, and, and so you guys go in there just to kind of like several months from now, it'll be just a perfect time to kind of step in there and be able to encourage, like, encourage them. And so I'm really excited about that trip. So I'd encourage all of you like just to pray about, pray for the trip and then pray about also supporting the kids as they go. But if you're just, if you're just joining us, we are in John chapter 15 this morning. Like Jake said, we've been going through the gospel of John. And last week we, we looked at this really mysterious, um, this really mysterious thing that, that is, is really this, like one of the central points of the Christian gospel. And it's, it's, that, it's what Jesus said in John 14, verse... I lost my place already. I just, just was getting started. In John 14, Jesus said that, that on that day when they kind of see him like rise from the dead, that, that they will know that he is in the Father and that they are in him. Jesus, the disciples are in Jesus and he is in them. What he's talking about is this mysterious doctrine of the, the unity that we have with Christ and in Christ and that in the gospel we are found to be in Christ. You know, and that, that idea is, is kind of deep and mysterious as it is that Jesus is going to develop it in kind of probably a familiar passage to a lot of you if you've grown up in the church. But but the, the reality of being in Christ and having Christ in us, and we talked about this last week, um, really kind of distills down into two main areas, is that when we're found in Christ, what that means is that when God looks at us, everything that belongs to Christ and all of Christ's life and all of Christ's work and all of Christ's righteousness and his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, like all of it like becomes ours. So when God sees us, he sees us in Christ as having been crucified with Christ and having been raised with Christ. And Ephesians even says we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And then it talks about, Jesus mentioned how Christ is in us, that we have the, and, and he, talks about the, he talked about last week the gift of the Holy Spirit, that we have the power through Jesus Christ dwelling in us to, to make it through this world. And so those two things together, you know, kind of go hand in hand, where because Christ is in us, we can have the, the strength in him to, to keep pressing on even while we, when we feel weak or when we feel faint or when the temptation seems to be overwhelming us, when we remember that, we, that Christ is in us, we know that we have like the power to overcome. And that when we fail, we can approach boldly the, and with confidence the throne of grace because we are in Christ and that all of Christ's righteousness belongs to us. We don't have to fear like going to the Father in our weakness and and this morning, he's going to kind of develop that in this idea of, he's going to talk about the relationship between vine and the branches. And the point that he's going to be make is that the life of flourishing for the Christ, for, that Christ promises us, the fruitfulness that he calls us to, 
the joy that comes from being a Christian are all impossible unless we really press into that reality of living in Christ and having Christ live in us. And the way he's going to describe that this morning is in this illustration of a vine and branches. So our text is going to really break out into two main sections. The first of those is, uh, is in verses 1 through 8, the necessity of abiding. The necessity of abiding in the vine means that if you're a branch and you're, you're broke off from the main vine, like you're going to wither and you're going to die. And then in verses 9 through 16, he's going to speak about the journey of abiding. What does it look like and like how do we do it? What are the characteristics of abiding in the vine? So if, if you could just stand with me, I'll read and then I'll pray this morning, um, and then we'll get into uh, our text. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 8 this morning, um, and then we'll read the rest later on. This is God's word for his church, John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, and he, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. And um, even as I kind of feel my weakness this morning, I just thank you that the truth of what Jesus is saying that um, apart from you, we can do nothing. So Father, I just ask that you would um, superintend over the rest of our service, that your spirit would be working to enable me to speak, that your spirit would open our hearts to understand your word, and that we would love Jesus more and be more devoted to him because of the time we spent here this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> you know, as we get uh, uh, like started here, you might have heard me heard it said like as I was reading that word abide, or some of your translations might use the word remain. That word abide like appears over and over and over again. And like somebody told me yesterday that I read through my notes that that like abide feels like a kind of an old fashioned to use sort of word that a lot of people might not know what it means. And so I, I just thought I'd take just a second to explain what that idea of abiding means. And it has this idea of of like dwelling with. In fact, when Jesus earlier, I think it was back in chapter 14, talked about how he's going to go and he's going to make a, a, a place for us to dwell with God, he used the noun form of that word. Like it's this, it's this dwelling place, or in this case, we are to dwell with, we are to live with, we are to be at home with, and, and um, the vine that we're supposed to be like dwelling with and residing with, and there's a sense of permanency to it and not departing from the vine who, as we read in the text, is Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus is going to be talking about here is that if we really want to live as Christians, we can't do that unless we learn to actively every single day press into what it means to be in Jesus Christ. You know, the, the interesting thing, though, is as he opens this up in verses 1 through 3, is that Jesus' em emphasis isn't on initially what we have to do, but it's on, it, the emphasis is on what he has done and what, and what the Father's doing. Look what he says. He, he, he introduces the illustration in verse 1. I am the true vine, 
and my father is the vine dresser. Just right out of the gates, Jesus kind of lays out the illustration and he explains it as he's doing it, that he's the vine and his father's the viticulturist. You know, as he was going into this illustration, it was a really common illustration for the people of Israel because they, like us, lived in an area where there was lots of vineyards around. And there was lots of vines around. In fact, some people might think as they were sitting in the upper room that like, you know, some vine tendrils were growing up around the windows or whatever. It's a little bit imaginative, but they clearly understood vineyards because they lived all around them. But more importantly, the, the illustration is one that, that occurs over and over and over again in the Old Testament to refer to the people of Israel. And it's interesting what Jesus says in verse 1. He says, he doesn't say, I am the vine. He says, I am the true vine, that he's the vine that, that is real. He's the vine that really yields the fruit that he's supposed to do. And he's the vine in contrast to other vines that aren't true. And I think what he's alluding back to is he's alluding back to the Old Testament because over and over again in the Old Testament, the, the people of Israel always failed to live up to what God called them to do over and over and over again. And sometimes... When he talked about them as a vine, like he talked about them that way. One of them, probably the, the most uh, common passages is in Isaiah 5. And in Isaiah 5, the, um, God's laying the groundwork for why this judgment is going to be coming upon the house of Israel. And he talks about how the house of Israel is, is like his vineyard. And he did everything for the vineyard. He built a wall around it and he cultivated it. And he, he built a wine vat in it. And he, he built a tower to protect it. And he did everything for the for the vineyard, and then when he went to go get the fruit from it, it, it says it yielded, it yielded wild grapes and not like, like true useful grapes. And then he ends that section with this, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And then the next thing, and he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. What, what Isaiah is telling us and what God's telling us through Isaiah is that when God went to look at the fruit of the nation of Israel, he was expecting to harvest justice, and instead their fruit was bloodshed. He was expect, expecting to harvest righteousness, but instead there was this outcry as people like lived under unrighteousness. You know, and so what Jesus is saying here is that he is the true vine. He's the one that does what the people of God could never do. He's the one in whom true justice is found. He's the one in whom true righteousness is found. He's the one that establishes that fruit and that does it truly. And that's part of the beauty of what it means to be in Christ, because guess what? You and I aren't that much different than the people of Israel. If God were to really sift through your life and say like, oh, what, what is the fruit that you're producing, Steve? When, you're, when your wife tells you something that you don't want to hear. I'm always responding spiritually and kindly, right? Where's Rachel? Well, wait, why are you looking at me like that? You know, but the beauty of being in Christ is that, is that his fruit becomes our fruit. He's the true vine. It's his justice and his righteousness that this world needs. He's the one that does what we could never do. I'm thankful that his life becomes my own. You know, but then in verse 2, he talks about the work of the Father, and he says, he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, 
that it may bear more fruit. So apparently there's two kinds of branches in this vineyard. There's these branches that we're going to find out later on aren't connected to the vine. And like any branch that's not connected to the vine, it like just slowly withers and dies and doesn't produce anything. And then there's the other branches who are bearing fruit. And because they're bearing fruit, they get pruned by the Father so that they can bear more and more fruit. And I don't know if you guys have done it, but this winter, like when, when, like the, when the vineyards all get pruned, like when does that happen, Jeff? February. February? So like February, go out to a vineyard. Don't trespass, but just... <laughs> But go out to a vineyard without getting caught. <laughs> and just look at the pruning that happens. And, if, and, and it always is remarkable to me because what happens typically is that there'll be this, like, the, the, the vine. And, then and everything will be cut away except two little sticks. And, you're, and, and the, the, vine, the vineyards that look so flourishing and so full of life during the harvest are stripped back to almost nothing where all that you really notice is the trunk. You know, and the reality is, is there's two paths that we can kind of walk. We can walk as, uh, and some of you, you know, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you've never been connected to the vine. You're just this branch laying on the ground that's withering and it says we'll be just taken away one day. Or you can be a branch that's connected to the vine through your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you are, you're going to experience two things. You're going to see God producing fruit in your life, and you're going to experience his pruning. And pruning, by definition, is a painful process. But, but one of the things that Jesus is telling us here is that if we're going to be fruitful and useful for the, for, for, for the kingdom of God, like... We can't just let our natural inclinations and our sins and our, everything else just run wild. But the Father is faithful to come back and just begin cutting us back until all that's visible, really, is the vine. You know what that means for us? If you're here this morning and you feel like you've been in one of those seasons of just pruning after pruning after pruning after pruning where life seems pretty painful... You know, if you're in Christ, just be comforted because, like, he's, like, he's, I've heard, I've heard the expression that the hand of the Father is never as close as when he's pruning the branches. And he doesn't ever over-prune us. He doesn't ever go wrong. He just is stripping us back to those points where, where we can bear the most fruit. Because a wild, unpruned vine produces little usable fruit. You know, and then in verse 3, the Jesus, bring, Jesus says something really important that brings up, like, that clears up some easily, easy misunderstanding. Because it might, be, it might be easy to read verses 1 and 2 as like, oh, there's these two type of branches, ones that get hauled off and ones that bear fruit. So I better be bearing fruit, bearing fruit, bearing fruit, bearing fruit, or else, like, the, the, the vineyard owner is going to come in, just lop me off and haul me away. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? And we can easily get ourselves on this cycle of, of like performance-based religion where we just got to do, 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 do because we're always under the fear of like the pruning shears coming through and lopping us off. You guys know what I'm talking about. I think our hearts so easily drift that way. But look what Jesus says to his disciples. And, and there's this wordplay that happens in the Greek that's impossible to translate, um, at least according to the people that are smarter than me that have tried to do it. Um, 
But he says this, he says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. There's this wordplay that happens between the idea of being taken away um, in verse 2 and being pruned in verse 2 and being clean in verse 3. What happens is the word taken away is a word, and then pruned is, is that word with a prefix on it, and the word um, clean is like sounds almost the same as the word pruned. It's like, the, the, it's like they rhyme. So what Jesus is doing is he's connecting their, clean, their, their, their cleansing to this pruning. And what he says in verse 3, he's telling his disciples, he's speaking comfort to them. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. This word of Jesus' life and Jesus' mission, this, this revealing of who God is in the person of Jesus Christ and in his work on the cross is what ultimately makes them clean. They are positionally and secure in the vine because of the word of the gospel that was spoken to them. And what the, so what that means is that the pruning that's going on in this life is that we already are what God is pruning us to become. We already are what God is pruning us to become. I don't have this in, on the screen, but in Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul says, you know, like, lay aside, or no, it's not a two, I think it's in Ephesians 4, he says, lay aside your old life, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. And then he says, and put on the new self, which has been created. Like past tense, it's already done according to the likeness of him who made you. Like we already are what we're being pruned to become. And we just need to cooperate with the Lord's process in that. It's similar to what he said back in John 13 earlier this same evening in the life of the disciples. Um, Jake preached on it. Like Jesus was going to wash the disciples' feet. And Peter's like, oh, if you need to wash me, wash every part of me. And in John 13, Jesus said this, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. That's that same word. And you are clean, but not every one of you, speaking of Judas. So what he's saying is like this, the life of the Christian is one of like continually being like cleansed by Jesus Christ, continually being pruned by the Father so that we could bear more and more fruit. We need that work of the Lord in us every single day. Then we get to verse 4, and this is where he starts to talking about abiding. He says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. So what he's saying here is like, this is, this is the imperative. You need to abide in me, and I in you, because you can't bear any fruit whatsoever unless you do so. The illustration of the vine makes that obvious. If you cut the branch off, if you're not like connected in there, like you're not going to accomplish anything. So what Jesus is telling us here is that it's very, very possible as a Christian to be in Christ and to have Christ in us and yet not live in the like day-to-day -day reality of that or else he wouldn't make it an imperative. He's saying, you need to abide in me. And it's absolute necessity because you can't bear any fruit in your life apart from that. And then he, he, he gets a little bit more um, explicit in verse 5. I am the vine, and you are the branches, in case they hadn't figured it out yet. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do most things and be pretty successful. No, apart from me, you can do zero. You can do nothing. Nothing. 
what Jesus is saying is like we, we as Christians need to live in this constant reality of abiding in Jesus Christ and learning what that means and letting it press into our hearts, learning that experientially day by day, because if we don't do that, we're not good for anything. We're not producing any fruit whatsoever. You know, so it's possible for some of us to not experience it when we're here, but it's also part of us that some of the, maybe possible that one of the reasons why you're not experiencing it is because you're, never, you're not in Christ whatsoever. You know, it, you might be laying your, as a branch in proximity to like living, living vines. You may be part of a church. You might be showing up here every Sunday, but if you've never come to the place of placing your faith in Jesus Christ, of repenting of your sin, of turning to him, and of like clinging to him as your only hope, you're just a branch laying in the field with all the living ones, and you can't do anything. Like, nothing good will come. In fact, what the text is going to tell us here in verse, um, in verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. So if you're here, I just want to challenge you. Like, if you're not seeing God working at all in your heart, he hasn't changed your affections and your desires, if you're just here kind of doing the, the religious thing, thinking that, oh, like being a Christian is showing up at a meeting on Sunday and trying to be a moral person, like, no, Jesus is saying, no, being a Christian is being united with Jesus Christ, like dwelling with him, being at home with him, letting him be at home with you, having your whole life be saturated by his life. And if you're not growing in that, I think Jesus' warning here is that, that those branches end up getting burned. But then he gives us a little, bit, a little picture in verses 7 and 8 about what, the, about what this um, life of abiding in him looks like. He says, and if you abide in me and my words abide in you. So the first thing is, is this life of abiding in Christ. And he, he replaces his words with this idea of Christ abiding in us. He says, if my words abide in you. What he's saying is if, if God's word and the teachings of Jesus Christ and, and the example of his life is, is living within us, if we are being formed by that and nourished by that, then our, our lives will change, our perspective will change. And then he says, and if, you, if, if that's the case, if, if you're living like saturated with my word where it's dwelling within you and at home within you and shaping you and forming you, then you can ask whatever you want in my name and I'm going to do it for you. Like we'll experience the, the working of God's word in our hearts. We'll, we'll experience him answering our prayer as it's focused to like this idea of bearing fruit. Because our, our minds and our hearts and our priorities and our affections will be like shaped to be what Jesus is, Jesus are. Like this, this abiding with Christ is by definition like word-centered, but Christ the word himself like comes to dwell in us and forms us by, by his word. So there's a, I guess I just want to ask the question, you know, there is, a never-ending like stream of influences on our life that wants to form us. There's a never-ending like stream of influencers that want to shape us. And the question is like, what is it at the end of the day that's really forming you? Is it God's word dwelling in you? Is that what's shaping your heart and mind and your affections so that you can experience what it means to be in Christ? Or is it something else? Is it the priorities of this world? Is it the values of this world? Is it, the, is it the, even the good things 
that takes center place and, and dethrone God from that center place in our heart. Jesus says, if, how did he say it? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. He's like, the way that you prove that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ is that his words are dwelling in you your priorities and prayers are focused on his and, and they bring glory to him and you bear fruit. The stakes are high because if that's not the pattern in your life, like Jesus is saying, well, you're probably not proving to be my, my disciple. So the question is that I think we need to ask is what is the fruit that Jesus is talking about? Like you're probably all like, well, that's pretty important. So I better get this right. Some people will say like, oh, it's like the, the fruit of Christ's character working in our hearts and that it's like we're kind of captured by the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. Other people say, no, it's the fruit of, of Christ's purpose in this world, the, the, the reaching of the nations, the evangelism of the lost, and, and we'll, we'll see fruit of like baptisms and conversions. And, you know, I think like I hear it all the time where those two things are put in like opposition to each other, but I don't think that they're like valid opposites. In fact, I think it's the same thing because Jesus starts this, you know, as he alluded back to Isaiah 5, 7, that he looked for justice and behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness and behold, there was an outcry. Like one of the things that the true vine yields is justice and righteousness. Like that's internal, internal characteristics. He goes on and he says that um, he speaks later on in this text and we'll get there about about the need to, like, love each other. He says you should love each other just as the Father loves me, or I love you just as the Father loves me, and you need to love each other just like I've loved you. He talks about, like, this joy that's going to be full in their life later on in the text. Like, so there's this clear like, characteristics of Jesus Christ that's worked in our hearts over time as we abide in the vine. But then, at the end of the text, look what he says in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. There's this idea of going and bearing fruit, not just staying put and bearing fruit. So I think that at the end of the text, it has this eye towards the, the establishment of like churches, the evangelism of the lost, the, the bringing in of, of people as we go and bear fruit. So I think the way to think about this is if we're abiding in Christ and the life of Christ is ours, the the character of Christ is ours and the mission of Christ will be ours. Like, it's not two separate things. It's the life of Christ. If we're going to follow in his footsteps, we, we, don't, we, all, we have to walk like he walked and we need to go do the things that he went to go do. I think it, in Jesus' mind, it's both of those things that his character would be shaped in us and his purpose would be carried out through us. You know, as he ends there, and at this point, it would be almost easy for us to, in verse 8, like to, to just kind of feel like this is a mercenary affair. Like it's all been about bearing fruit. And it's about bearing fruit and how to distinguish between true disciples and not true disciples. And, you know, like, oh, and if we abide in Christ, we're going to accomplish the mission of Christ. And that's what we do. And I think what Jesus does next is he says, like, no, 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 it's, it's that, but it's so much more. Because look what he says. And this is like the, the, what the path of, what's my second point this morning? The, the journey of abiding or that path of abiding for us this morning. 
And look what he says, starting in verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Think about that for a second. Just as the Father has loved me. Like, how deeply does the Father love the Son? Like, I don't even think we can conceive of how deeply the Father loves the Son. Like, the Son is always, like, everything the Son has done has always been pleasing to the Father. So not only does he love the Son just by virtue of the Son, his worth of, like, loveliness, but, like, the fact that Jesus has never done anything ever remotely even close to, like, breaking that love. Like, the Father's love for the Son is complete, and it's total and Jesus says, just like the Father loved me, so I have loved you. Like, Jesus' love for us is complete and it's total. That's kind of what, it gives us more, like, weight to that expression that Jesus said back in, or John said back in John 13, where he says, um, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the uttermost. Like the love of Jesus for his people is the same as the Father's love for him. It is complete and it is total and it is insurpassable. He loves us to the utmost. But then Jesus says, abide in my love. Again, we can be like Christians and we can live like without experientially like living in the love of Jesus Christ for us. In fact, John, later on in his life, in 1 John 4, writes this. In, John, in 1 John 4, 14 through 16, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. What he's saying is like, man, you have, you've come to know the love of God that's seen, that's seen like ultimately just displayed in the cross. You've come to believe in the love of God. And he says, and if you abide in God like, and abide in love, like you'll abide in God and God will abide in you because God is love. You know, the point being is that the reality that Jesus talks to us about is that he gives us the imperative to live or to dwell or to be at home in the love of God. And if we choose not to, if we choose not to abide in Christ and not to abide in the Father, we step outside of the experience of his love for us. Now, God's love for us is like without measure. But our experience of that, we can step outside of that. He says, abide in my love. So if you're abiding in anything else, if you're looking to anything else for your life, if you're looking to anything else for, to be at home, to, to feel like safe and content and secure, other than Jesus Christ and the, and the relationship you have with him and the Father, maybe it's your self-sufficiency. Oh, I just need to be like man enough to do this or woman enough. Maybe you're just like, man, like my freedom as an empty nester or freedom as a retired person is like making my life so rich because I can just go on vacation after vacation and go out to eat and do whatever. Those are all good things. But are you abiding in Jesus Christ? Are you abiding in his love? Are you dwelling there? 
are you outside of that? Maybe it's like school or success or sports or hobbies. Maybe it's your relationships. We have seen, we have come to know and have believed the love that God has for us. We come to know it through Jesus Christ. We need to like live in this place of believing in it. The way to do that is the next thing he talks about. It's here in verse um, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You know, it's easy, again, to misinterpret that as like there's this threat all the time of like God like just whacking us if we don't like abide in his love. But what he's saying is just the opposite. It's like my commandments to you, my word to you, like my like what I say about like ethics and priorities and morality and sin is not like here to destroy like your life and to like like just be a downer on everything. It's to keep you in that sphere of my love. So if we step out of his commandments, just like Adam and Eve, when they stepped out of his commandments, they were thrown out of the garden. Like if we, were, if we step out of his commandments, like we're stepping out of like the ability to kind of experientially like appreciate the love of God for us. So Jesus' words are like, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. The way to do that is to like walk in obedience to Jesus Christ. We can either choose to dwell in disobedience and remain outside of his love or at least the experience of it, like, please, please hear me in that. Or we can, like, walk in his commandments and, like, walk in his love. This isn't just a mercenary affair. This is about experiencing the love of God that he has for Jesus that is also ours. Which brings us to this, the third thing that he talks about in, in verse, um, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Like if, if we're growing and letting God's word form us and abiding in Jesus Christ and seeing him answer our prayers and, and like living in the love of God for us, like our joy is going to be full, regardless of the circumstances around us. He's like, I'm writing this for that purpose so that you can experience my love, you can experience my joy. You need to like dwell in me and stop being distracted by everything else. You know, he continues, says this, this is my commandment. So the primary commandment, that you love one another just as I love, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. So this, this life of like walking in Christ's love, of experiencing the joy that comes from that, of being formed by his word, um, looks like sacrificial love for other people. He says, the one commandment, the main commandment that I'm going to give for you is to love each other just as I have loved you. And, I'm, and greater love has no man than this than if he lays down his life for his friends. Now we can all sit there and we all, if you're a Christian and you've been around the church at all, or even if you haven't been and just like, kind of like watched anything that speaks about what Christians should be, I think we all understand this idea that we're supposed to love each other like Christ has loved us. At least at one level. But think about it for a second. Like, this isn't just warm sentiments that Jesus is giving them. He's, he's sitting at dinner with his 12 disciples, and there might have been some other people there, I don't know. But it, it, we know his, or his 11, because Judas had already left. He's sitting with his 11 disciples, and he said, this is my commandment. And he's looking at him in the eye. This is my commandment, that you love one 
another, even as I have loved you. And he, when he says one another, you're probably looking around like Peter. He's probably looking around at Matthew like, really? That dude? I know what he feels like. I see all of you. Like, <laughs> Did I say that out loud? Yeah, yeah. I mean, but think about it. Like, look around. Like, seriously, look around. Jesus is saying, like, this is my commandment, that you love that guy in that other church over there. <laughs> right? Those people, you don't even know their name. Just as I have loved you and, and laid down my life for you. This was, like, real and tangible. And, and just in a few hours, the disciples are going to begin to understand what that really means because they're going to see Jesus literally lay down his life for them as he's, as he's betrayed and arrested and, and tortured and executed in their place. That's the kind of love you need to have for each other, Jesus says. This life of abiding in the vine is going to be, and, and, maintain, and like staying in, like abiding in the love of God, looks like loving each other with the same sacrificial love that Jesus had. So think about the reality of that for a second. When a need comes up in the body, like, do you lay down your life for the sake of your friend? When somebody offends you here at Creekside or when I just did, like, do you <laughs> lay your life down for the sake of your friend? When, when catastrophe strikes somebody, do you lay your life down for the sake of your friend? Or do you just kind of live in like your own self-centered life and just doing your own thing. Some of you, like, your Christianity is nothing more than just showing up at a meeting on Sunday and then leaving, so you don't even know the needs of the people around you, let alone have the ability to meet those needs. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this than one lay down his life for his friends. Let me clear up a couple misconceptions. If in your mind you're like, oh, phew, because I've got a friend list and I've got my not friend list. <laughs> and we're only supposed to lay down our life for our friends. Right? You guys with the disclaimer on that one? <laughs> my friend list is like, like, I can count them on two hands, right? So the rest of y'all, forget you. So that's a joke. <laughs> Giving you opportunity to practice loving me. So, you know, but the point is this, is that, is that, um, if you have in your mind this list of like friends who you love and this list of non-friends who you don't love, that's not the point that Jesus was getting at. In fact, the love of God for us was a, he didn't love his disciples because they were his friends. It was his love for his disciples that made them his friends. In fact, we see this in Romans 5.8. But, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was when we were sinners and like opposed to God. And later on in Romans, it says enemies of God, that Christ died for us in his love and made us his friends. So if you've got this long list of non-friends, the question that should be in your mind is like, how can you love them in such a way that you can see them like not only become like, like, be, like be reconciled to God and then in being reconciled to God, be reconciled like to you. It's not about having two lists and loving some and not loving the others. And if you have that list, it probably shows like where there's some weakness in your own heart to love. 
You know, the second, the second misconception I want to clear up and is, in, is in verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And again, like this can, this can easily come across like a threat. Like, you're my friends if you do what I command, but if you don't do what I command, you're not my friends. I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at. What he's, what he's getting at is that like, if we're truly been reconciled to God, if we're truly like abiding in the vine, if we are his friends, like this command to love is an absolute non-negotiable. Like that's the command. And if you're not walking in like love of like others, you're not, you're not abiding in the vine. So if you're being fueled by like animosity or bitterness or hate or prejudice or whatever it might be, Jesus says, no, my command for you is that you love each other. You know, and the last kind of characteristic of, of abiding, and Marv, you can kind of come up to close this, is in the, the last two verses there in 15 and 16, he, he says this, he says, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask in my, of the father in my name, he may give to you. What he's saying is like, you know, this walk of abiding in the vine is abiding in God's love. It's abiding in his joy. It's walking in love with each other and in community with each other. And then lastly, it's, it's that we know and are invited into the purposes of God. He says that he's a, he, compares, he compares his friends to slaves. He's like, a slave just does what they're told. He says, but a, a friend is invited into like the thoughts and the intentions and the purposes of his friend. He says, that's what you are. I've invited you into my purposes and, you are, and I've chosen you so that you could go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. Like there's a lot of things that you can go and do when you leave here. There's a lot of things you can spend your life and your energy on, but Jesus is revealing to you his purposes in this world. He's inviting you into those purposes and he's saying, you can live your life for something that actually matters your fruit will remain instead of just all of the transitory stuff that just comes and goes. He says, I want you to bear fruit that lasts and I want you to go and bear fruit. And you know, at the end of the day, that requires like that same self-sacrificial love that Jesus had. Let me just close with this in John chapter 12, verses 23 through 26. Jesus spoke about kind of his life um, in bearing fruit and he invites us into that same life. He says, And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's talking about his crucifixion. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, at the end of the day, this life of abiding in the vine is like the, the basic, non-negotiable life of the Christian. As we're abiding in him, he's going to be producing his character in us. He's going to be sending us out into this world to be about his mission. And he's inviting us into this opportunity to know what he's doing and to live for something that lasts. You know, so as we're wrapping up here today, um, as Marv closes, I just want to challenge you to just think through, like, what are some things that are keeping you from abiding in the vine? And as you abide in him, like, 
just ask yourself, well, who has God sent you to? Who has he chosen you to go to and represent him to and with the gospel so that we can bear much fruit? So Marvon should close us and I'll close us in prayer.